And welcome to Fresh Ears. I'm Neil Cowling, the founder of Fresh Air Production, and along with my team of podcast producers, I spend most of my working day talking and thinking about podcasts for brands and businesses. But that doesn't mean you do too. Why would you? So that's why we came up with this idea, where we pick apart a branded podcast project to see how it came about, why it was successful, and what we can learn. We speak to the client and the producers to get the perspective from those who've paid for it and those who made it happen. In this episode, we're digging into a podcast that was 50 years in the making. Okay, that's a slight bending of the truth, but we were celebrating a project that was 50 years in the making, even if the podcast only took a few months. It's by the Centre of Longitudinal Studies at University College London, and it's called 50 Years of Life in Britain. Seven million people with a literacy and numeracy problem it was shocking. So you're talking about one in five of the population there had skills less than what you'd expect of an 11-year-old. So they couldn't read the, the front of the prescription bottle. You know, they couldn't read the back of the, the Mestos bottle. Um, but also it, it showed how it affected the rest of their life. You know, so if you've got poor literacy skills, you're more likely to be in prison. If you've got poor literacy skills, you're more likely to get in debt. So how do you try and compress the findings of a project that's lasted 50 years into a six-part podcast series? And how do you make that happen entirely remotely during a pandemic? Joining me to talk this through are Ryan Bradshaw, Senior Communications Officer, and Justine Goy, Communications and Events Officer, both at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at UCL, and Martin Points-Roberts, who's our Senior Producer here at Fresh Air. So, uh, Ryan or Justine, whoever wants to take this first. So the podcast was commissioned to celebrate something called the British Cohort Study of 1970. So who fancies explaining what that is? At at CLS, we manage four of Britain's cohort studies, so following multiple generations of people for their lives. And so this year marks the 50th birthday of the 1970 British Cohort Study and our study participants. So to celebrate the occasion, we decided to run a, a campaign posting 50 stories over 50 weeks on social media and our website to tell the story of the study and highlight the contributions it's made to British science and society. So the study has been following people sort of since they were born in 1970, sort of periodically interviewing them every few years to find out more about their lives, to conduct uh, physical and cognitive assessments as they go through childhood and through through school, you know, to, to sort of monitor their education. And then obviously, as they become adults, their family life, their employment, their health. OK, so it's a study that's followed all these people for 50 years and, and learned about their lives and, and used it to, to influence all sorts of policy and thinking in the UK. Justine, why did you want to produce a podcast? Well, as Ryan mentioned, this was part of 50 Stories in 50 Weeks. And the campaign has different strands. It's, as uh, Ryan said, on website and social media. But we have articles, graphics, animated timelines. And it seemed really important as well to let all the different actors of the 1970 British cohort study have a voice because the 1970 British cohort study, or as we call it, BCS70, is made up of so many different people, the directors, former and current, the um, researchers who have 
looked into the data and managed to find surprising things or perhaps links that we never suspected would be the case. The policymakers who, based on the research, have come to some important decisions and also the study members because they've given their time for 50 years and that's really an amazing thing to do for society and science. So we wanted to let all of them have a voice and all together tell the story of the study. Also, um, something else that we probably wanted to do is to sort of bring the whole campaign to life. But also, I think we wanted to delve deeper into the story of the study and get a view sort of behind the scenes. You know, because everyone knows about the research findings that have influenced government policy and these amazing scientific discoveries. But I don't think many people know about the sort of the, the how and the why and the context and I think that's what we really wanted to do by, as Justine said, speaking to the main actors who, who were involved over the years. So who was the intended audience for this then? Was it those who were involved? Was it uh, sort of general public? Who were you aiming this at? I think we really wanted to make the series sort of varied and, and we, we wanted to sort of try to make sure that we could, it could be digestible by the academics who are very, very interested in the specific policies and the history of the study and the science, but also for a general public audience, because obviously our study members are, you know, sort of representative sample of the general public um, from 1970. So I think we really wanted it to be sort of specific enough about the research that academics would find it very interesting, but also quite general. So it would be accessible by by pretty much anybody. So there are some there were some really really deep intellectual sort of scientific debates through the series about some quite contested academic discussions um, but also there were lots and lots of references to to sort of popular culture and you know global and UK political events that have occurred over the last five decades. So Martin let's bring you in Martin as the as the senior producer on this what grabbed you about this project to kick off? Well when you said to me I've got a study called the British Cohort Study 1970 I kind of looked at you blankly and said, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> what the heck does that mean? Yeah, um, yeah, I remember that. And then it all made sense. Um, so I thought, this is great. And then we talked about ways we could do it. And I got all overexcited because I thought, oh, we can do something like, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the show. Rock and um, Roll Years. Rock and Roll Years, that's right. The, the BBC did in the in the 70s and 80s, uh, followed the, 70, the 80s, I think. And, you know, mixing the culture of the time, the music of the time, the news reports of the time. And then we kind of realised that we didn't have the money for that, which is fine. So we'll look at it a different way. But the beauty of this was what we did have was those 17,000 people who took part in the survey. And to be honest, their reflections were just as useful as the reflections you'd get on, say, the rock and roll years from the news report and the culture. They had those stories. And so it was a real joy to take those elements that I was really, really keen on, on focusing on and then mix up with some of the news of the day which they brought with them, but also to dig down into those those stories that Ryan has just talked about, the backstory, the stories behind the people that were making the decisions, getting involved. And, and what was interesting to me was, <laughs> on many occasions I was listening to the interviews thinking, what on earth are they talking about? Because they're so deep, and I'm, I'm just a journalist. And I was trying to get a grip on it, and then you get to the point where it all clicks, and you think, okay, my job here is to make this accessible. Not dumb it down for the academics, but also make it understandable in bite-sized chunks, and that's what I think we did very well. So just sum up for us, Martin, the format that you came up with for this in the end. The series was presented by a guy called Lee Elliott Major, 
who has worked in academia for many years. He's a social mobility expert. He would do the interviews with with basically look at the key key people behind the study. But we thought, let's break it down. We've got six episodes. We've got an episode for the 70s. We've got the 80s when they were growing up, the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and then looking to the future. So we kind of broke down through those decades, the, the big findings of the time, the big government policies of the time, the reflections of the cohort of the time, and some really in-depth interviews with those that were there to explain you know, what was going on behind the scenes and how important the findings they found were. It was quite straightforward in the end, but some really, really technical stuff dealt with in a, in a manageable way, I think. Justine, um, Martin's hinted at, uh, you know, we, as, as creatives, we would all love endless budget to play with and, you know, luxurious resources. That's obviously not always the case. And there are, there are some budgets that are more restricted than others. And, and so you were right from the start, you were playing with a, a fairly limited amount of resource here, weren't you, to, to create something great for your audience? Yes, definitely. That was one of the challenges that we had to face from the start, limited resources, both in terms of budget and staff resources, because um, it was mostly Ryan um, heading the project and taking care of the content, and then me as, as backup, mostly marketing backup. And that's why, in fact, we chose you, Fresh Air, because we put out a call for tender and asked about seven providers. And a lot of them, given our budget, would either refuse to deal with us or drastically tone down the ambition of the project and suggest quite uninteresting formats such as 10-minute interviews that we might as well do ourselves with our phones. Whereas Fresh Air, I think you were the ones who showed us that you could have ambition, you could have passion, and you could have creative solutions despite limited resources. And that was really why we chose you in the end. (laughs) That's nice to know. It's kind of part of the fun of it, really. I mean, you know, as I say... We'd all love to work on Hollywood budgets, but that's not the case. And actually, sometimes creating an exciting podcast can be done within the limits of what we have without resorting to, as you say, two people sat around an iPhone. It's it's the beauty of the medium in many ways that you can paint the pictures and, and do things that don't need an elaborate amount of resource to come into fruition. Um, Ryan, from the logistics point of view, there were two things that hit us pretty hard in this. A, lockdown, which I know hit everybody pretty hard. We're not unique in that sense, but essentially creating a podcast in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic presented you guys with practical problems as well as us. What were the issues from your side? Well, I think actually what's quite strange is that it presented lots of challenges, but I also think it kind of presented us some sort of opportunities that maybe we wouldn't have had if we'd been recording it all in a studio. But I think probably the challenges were that, yeah, having to record everything kind of remotely, I think probably with some of our academics who are, who are quite elderly, sort of some of them are in their 80s, actually. So they're not particularly sort of um, conversant in sort of technology. That was sometimes a time-consuming process to sort of explain to them how it would work. 
and uh, Martin had to sort of send out recording devices to people. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of uh, care and attention Martin paid to some of our uh, elderly academics was amazing, really, you know, literally like a personal service kind of sending them out um, recording devices and then sort of explaining to them how, how to use them. It was quite amazing, really. And um, we, we got there in the end. I think probably another massive challenge was doing the, the sort of narration and links with our presenter, Lee. That was quite difficult, but at the same time, perhaps Martin and I were so close to the to the maybe over analytical with with like the the sound quality and what we were expecting, considering it was, you know, we were in the middle of a lockdown. We had lots of restrictions, and perhaps we did pick it a bit too much. But we had quite a few sort of long evenings where we would be sort of debating with each other: how do we get it? Like, how do we get it perfect? How do we get it perfect? And it was it, maybe we sort of the rod for our own yeah. backs, really, like trying to reach that perfection, but. I think in the end, probably not many people would uh, pick that up, you know, sort of the differences that we noticed. Yeah, then he sent it to us and it was like, can you can you hear at 0036 like this awful noise? And like, no, we cannot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Martin, from your point of view, so we've, we've established limited budget, lockdown, elderly contributors, all of that made it fairly difficult. What are the ways around that? What did you manage to find that helped you through it? Well, we like a challenge and uh, it became clear to me at the start, Ryan and I and Justine were very much on the same page, wanted to make a really, really fascinating series. When you talk about budget, it sharpens the mind when you've got limited resources, I think. And having come from a background at the BBC where we have no money anyway, I'm used to this, so it was okay. <laughs> so it wasn't a problem in that, in that sense. It just makes you think, well, okay, how do I do it? And we came up with the way we did it. Lockdown was a challenge. Um, not only was all my family at home, you know, this is one of the first, you know, and all the distraction that brings, but this is like the first thing we'd done, these, these restrictions. The first interviewee was an octogenarian. She's 84 years old and lived around the corner from my old house. And so in normal times, I'd have popped around and popped a microphone under her nose and uh, recorded the interview, only we couldn't. Um, so we tried various ways. I sent her a microphone, which sadly she couldn't use. We managed eventually to instruct her how to record on her smartphone, but then we couldn't get the audio from her. And so I rang a friend of mine up who lives a few doors away from her to go around to her flat. And literally she was posting the phone through the letterbox for him to take it away upload the audio and then pop the phone back. So we, we, we realised then what we were going to deal with, but we also realised that, well, we can do it. And, you know, there are some interviews where the sound quality isn't as good as I'd love it to be in studio quality under normal circumstances. But I think those people who we included, who are of a certain older, aren't so much tech savvy, did a very, very good job of getting to grips with it and managed to record and upload and do everything we asked. Obviously, in lockdown situation, we're on, we are not able to control the acoustics of a room, but, you know, most people did a very good job. One of the other elements when we're dealing with a limited budget and the sort of process that we talk through with the client is often that it sometimes means that the balance of research and preparation sort of goes back to the client slightly because the more that we do in-house, the more it costs but obviously if we can share some of that pre-production work with the client then that helps to 
allow us to work within budget. Ryan, how did you split that up? How much of that pre-production and research side of things did you handle at your end? I think as we discussed before, I think we spoke to a number of companies who who thought our plans were, you know, perhaps a bit too ambitious. Um, but I think Fresh Air had thought out in advance different ways we could realise our ambitions and, and were very open, honest about how we could work together. And I think, you know, I worked on sort of developing and, and, and scripting the the six episodes beforehand, doing lots and lots of research. And I've, I've worked for the Centre for Longitudinal Studies for six years so I've kind of over the years become quite sort of acquainted with with the 1970 British cohort study and the research that's come out. And I just had to get deeper and sort of like spend a lot of time doing even more research. Um, so in the end, I worked on developing a script in the series and Martin was able to come in and feedback on how my ideas would work as a, in a podcast form. And it was great fun working with Martin, bouncing ideas off of each other. You know, we got lots of enjoyment out of, you know, sort of thinking about the ways we could sort of evoke memories of British culture and society from each decade and you know what could work you know sort of perhaps cut this bit here or add this bit there but I think also at the same time I think one thing that I didn't expect was just how kind of iterative the process is as well in that you can do so much work in preparation and so much scripting but you have to kind of be very responsive to what you actually record as well and sort of react to that and I think that um, a lot of work was done beforehand but so much happened during the actual recording process and editing process as well so that was really interesting I thought yeah because you must have had lots of long stories lots of long memories to wade through and and pick the bones out of as I was saying before I think you know uh, the lockdown presented lots of challenges but also lots of opportunities because we had I think in the end we recorded about 30 people over a few weeks uh, it was extremely time consuming, you know, because we were recording people an hour to two hours each each recording. So I think I think literally for each episode, there were sort of like six, seven, eight hours of audio for a 35 minute podcast. So the editing reviewing process at start was pretty laborious. But as time went on, we, it did become a lot more streamlined because we could really we knew what we needed to pick out after a while. We knew the format. Our processes were just getting better and and more streamlined as time went on. And were you finding that you were listening through to all the audio or were you going through transcripts more than audio? How was, how was that balance? To begin with, I was trying to do a bit of everything, really, and I think that was very time-consuming. And then sort of as time went on, we sort of knew what we needed. So we, we could become a little bit more sort of selective and, and use the technology a bit better. So use um, Otter Transcription Service, I think it's called, you know, and yet their search function to look for bits that we wanted to slot in rather than searching around for for what we needed, we knew what we needed and we were able to go in and find it. That's sped up things quite a bit as well. And I, I learned all of that from Martin. And where did you get those bits of creative flair from, Martin? Because it, it well. would be easy. <laughs> yeah, where did you get your genius yes, well. from? You know, it would be very easy, you know, being blunt about it, creating a, a podcast for an academic institution about a 50-year-long academic study. It would be easy to make that pretty dry. And... As we've said, we can't suddenly throw a Rolling Stones record in there. What, where do the bits of creative flair from and, and inspiration come from so that you take it up a level? Say I'm the uh, Eric Cantona of Fresh Air Production. That's, that's you. <laughs> I've always thought of you like that. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a really interesting question because we had a lot of really interesting facts at our fingertips. Not only that, we had some good sound bites pulled out. And I thought, well... You know, what would we do? What I, I kind of almost think in television ways. Having I've worked in television as well, and I th- think about 
scripting sometimes in a way they do in TV, making it very clear blocks. What's the audio equivalent of a pop-up graphic on TV? And, and that's something that I think I find that that's a really nice thing to try and create in radio, in audio, in podcasts. Takes the listener slightly away from the narrative and gives them some more information, then takes them back. And I just thought, well, okay, we're talking about a cohort who grew up in the 70s. As I said, I'm that age. What do I remember about that age? My granddad's projector. He used to get around, put his films on, and you get that traditional... Back in the 1980s, what else did the study tell us about the cohort at age 10? At age 10, one in three study participants went to the library often. Two in five said they were good at maths. Half had caught the measles. One in seven had said they'd tried a cigarette. One in ten lived in lone parent families. Two in five ate chocolate every single day. Four in ten helped their parents with the washing up. I, I kind of do these things because I think, oh, what would I like to hear? What's gonna what's gonna make me smile and you know give me that information? How do I present that information in a different way? And so using music, using sound effects, it kind of brought the whole thing alive. And that was the nice thing about what. <laughs> One thing we did set out to do, the nice thing about how we went about planning every episode was as we had a decade for each episode, we had 70s, 80s, 90s, we found library music which was suitable for each decade. So we had like a glam rock stomp for the 1970s, very, very electronic, upbeat 80s tune, a 90s kind of Britpop style anthem and uh, 2000s kind of, I can't remember what that was, was it a grime beat? I can't remember. But anyway, we then use those those voices those memories of the cohort and and just laid them over so we had things like in the 90s memories about the happy mondays and the stone roses euro 96 and people just remembering those things that really got into their into their under their skin in the 80s we had people talking about thatcher band-aid nuclear war threat of nuclear war frankie goes to hollywood you know and and even et and you know all those things that made you think of the 80s with a nice bit with a nice with a, with a song that really you know was evocative of that time so to me it was a no-brainer because I love working with music in podcasts and and I think we've discussed it previously you either love it or hate it I think I think there are more people that love it and I think it really does set it aside from a straight documentary it just shows that there's more thought about listener experience and trying to entertain Justine You've got this resource now. You've got a six-part podcast sort of created in a fairly intense manner in a fairly um, short period of time. What have you done with it? How did you take it out there? How did you bring a, a listenership to it? Well, we posted it on our own channels, so website and social media, and also the University College London channels as a whole. Uh, we asked some of our partners, academic partners, institutions, charities, policy organizations to spread the word, include it in newsletters, and so on and so forth, try to have a really big marketing drive, especially ahead of episode one. We really found our audience uh, right from the start. We had quite a few listens, a lot more than we expected, and absolutely uh, no drop-off between the first episode and the sixth episode, which we also didn't expect. So I think that the format really struck the, the right balance because it was engaging enough uh, so that 
the, just the general public of study members found it interesting enough to keep listening to and the academics found it meaty enough as well to keep listening to it and in fact I think it was well I know that it was the most successful of our stories so far the, the 50 stories in 50 weeks that we mentioned I think in part due to the format because the medium is is new and it's surprising compared to the rest of the stories that we put out there which were mostly articles, different types of articles, some testimonials, some impact stories, data stories, with graphics, quite a lot of visual content. And this was the only bit of audio content. And I think really in, in the context of lockdown, the pandemic, it's important for people to take a break from this screen from time to time and the podcast medium enabled them to do that and it enabled them to as Ryan said have a really deep dive so I think in a way it contributed to the success of the um, series. UCL as an institution is no stranger to podcasts and actually has a really successful and popular channel in iTunes so just to explain that a little bit because we created a, a channel for this series specifically, but it, it was also featured as part of the wider UCL podcast, wasn't it? Yeah, we actually have several levels at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies. It's a little bit confusing, actually. So the Centre for Longitudinal Studies is part of the Institute of Education, which is also part of UCL. We featured the series across all three levels and had marginally different audiences each time. So it'll be some academics, some students, of course, but also with UCL, I think they managed to attract just general audience because they have a really strong series of lectures uh, that are open to the public. So the UCL Minds podcast channel has about uh, half a million followers. So I think that really uh, shows that it's not just academics and students. That's a great thing to be able to tap into, isn't it? That's a brilliant channel to have at your disposal. Yeah, it's great to tap into. But uh, as we were saying with Ryan, it's been such a success this series, even compared to other UCL series, that now Ryan and I are basically on a speaking circuit around UCL. <laughs> <laughs> We're asked to um, give all these presentations to other UCL people on how we did the podcast. Uh, so, you know, we're becoming quite the UCL celebrities now, and you might have a few more um, interested parties coming your way. Oh, well, that to have boosted your profiles. Um, so overall, to both of you, what have you learnt along the way? What would you say to other people in either similar institutions or other marketeers who are looking to use podcasts? What, what have you learnt and what would you advise? I think try, try and sort of stay faithful to your, to your ambitions and, and your aims and your plans because I think you will find a way of realising them in some form. I personally, I wouldn't change anything about the final series because I think it's amazing and especially under the budget and time and the conditions we had to work under. And I think, I think it's really, really important just to sort of have a team around you, even if it's a very, very small team and there's only three of you involved, 
just to sort of bounce ideas off and um, and just be flexible, pragmatic when, you know, sort of editing the content. And more than anything, I think the thing that we found with this was just sort of trying to make the episode as varied and as fast moving as possible. And I think we really achieved that. So all in all, I think it, it was, it's been an amazing, it was an amazing project to work on. I think we're all really, really proud. Justine, what nuggets are you now sharing with the rest of UCL on a regular basis? Well, I guess um, what I've learned is everything uh, because I knew nothing to start with. So I guess what it's taught me, I knew nothing at all about podcasts and we still managed to put out a really engaging, fascinating and professional sounding series and that's absolutely amazing so I guess what I've learned is even if at the beginning of a project you think well that would be nice uh, to have but also I know nothing about this I'm totally grasping around in the dark if you have the right partners and you know who to turn to to ask questions then you can definitely figure it out. I mean, I don't know if you recall, Neil, but I had some pretty stupid questions at the beginning, like, <laughs> what is a channel? What is hosting? And um, There are somehow... no stupid questions, honestly. <laughs> and somehow we managed to, to do it. We managed to figure it out. So thank you very much for having our back. And we're completely thrilled that we managed to make this crazy idea a reality. So that's 50 years of life in Britain from the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at the University College London. 50 years of history in six episodes. Thanks to Ryan Bradshaw, Senior Communications Officer, and Justine Goy, Communications and Events Officer, both for the Centre of Longitudinal Studies at UCL, and Martin Points-Roberts, the Senior Producer here at Fresh Air. And of course, if you'd like a tip-top podcast for your business or brand, please look us up at freshairproduction.co.uk. I'm Neil Cowling. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.